When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, June 28th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. As promised on Friday, more information on the so-called Dragon Man, the recently unveiled 140,000-year-old skull that may be a new species of extinct human. The science behind why all of your in-person coffee dates since reopening have been so awkward. And a first-of-its-kind study puts a number on the non-binary population in the U.S. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. An enormous ancient skull unveiled in China could be evidence of an entirely new species of extinct human. Commonly called the Harbin Skull, based on where it was found and nicknamed Dragon Man, some are calling the new species Homo longi. Longi comes from the Chinese word long, which means dragon. It's not just that this skull could change a lot of what we know about human lineage, but it also could have changed all of that nearly a century ago. That's because this skull was actually found in 1933 by a worker on a bridge construction site near Harbin in northern China. He then hid the skull in a well and didn't tell anyone about it until he was on his deathbed in 2018, when he shared the information with his family, who then went on to donate it to the Geoscience Museum of Hebei GEO University. The New York Times notes the man who found the skull was most likely aware of how significant this finding could have been since the skull of Peking Man, a subspecies of Homo erectus, had been found near Beijing just a few years prior. But also that the researchers speculate he may have kept the discovery a secret so he wouldn't have had to hand the fossil over to the Japanese authorities who occupied northeast China where the bridge was being constructed at the time. And his secret may have continued because he was ashamed to have worked for the Japanese following their invasion of China. China in the early 1930s. That's what the researchers speculate anyways. Whatever the reason he kept it hidden, can you just imagine if he hadn't? Like, how would it have changed the course of biological anthropology throughout the 20th century? To understand that impact, let's talk a little bit more about what the skull actually is. One important thing to know is that it's exceedingly rare to find skulls this complete. It's missing a lower jaw, yes, but many skulls this old are just fragments. And it's not just complete, it's exceptionally well-preserved. Quoting the New York Times, In the papers published Friday, the researchers argued that Homo longi appears to have been an adult of great size. His cheeks were flat and his mouth broad. The lower jaw is missing, but the researchers infer from the dragon man's upper jaw and other fossil human skulls that he likely lacked a chin. They say that his brain was about 7% larger than the average brain of a living human. The researchers argue that Dragon Man's combination of anatomical features are found in no previously named species of hominin, the lineage of bipedal apes that diverged from other African apes. They later evolved into larger brain species that set the stage for Homo sapiens to expand across the entire globe. 
It's distinctive enough to be a different species, said Christopher Stringer, a paleoanthropologist at the Natural History Museum in London and co-author of two of the three Dragon Man papers. The scientists analyzed the chemical composition of the fossil and determined it was at least 146,000 years old, but no older than 309,000 years old, end quote. That dating is the first challenge when it comes to this fossil, and the first place where skeptics sound the alarm. See, usually a fossil or artifact is dated in part by using the sediment in which it's found, according to Gizmodo, but no one actually knows where the worker originally found it. Not exactly. And the fossil is too old to use radiocarbon dating, so the researchers had to use geochemical dating techniques, which gave them that pretty wide window. And as scientists debate whether this dragon man could really represent a whole other species, every detail matters. Quoting again from the Times, Today, the planet is home to just one species of hominin, Homo sapiens. But dragon man existed at a time when a number of drastically different kinds of hominins coexisted, including Homo erectus, a tall human with a brain two-thirds the size of our own, as well as tiny hominins including Homo naledi in South Africa, Homo florensiensis in Indonesia, and Homo luzonensis in the Philippines. The oldest Homo sapiens fossils also date to this time, Neanderthals, which shared our large brain and sophisticated toolmaking ranged from Europe to Central Asia during the period when Dragon Man may have lived. In recent years, studies of fossil DNA have also revealed yet another human-like lineage in this period, the Denisovans, end quote. And from National Geographic, though not formally recognized as its own species, the Denisovans likely inhabited Asia for tens of thousands of years, and many Asian fossils have been suggested as members. But because scientists have only found meager fossil traces of their existence, genetic confirmation is necessary, and DNA preservation becomes increasingly unlikely with older fossils. In 2019, scientists announced the discovery of a fractured jaw on the Tibetan Plateau that likely came from a Denisovan, which would make the bone the first fossil of these ancient humans found outside the cave that gives the group its name. The newly proposed phylogenetic tree suggests that Dragon Man is most closely related to this jaw, called the Ziahe Mandible, end quote. But is Dragon Man Denisovan? Well, we don't have a jaw of his to physically compare or test, and quoting again, such a grouping conflicts with the story of the Denisovans laid out in the past studies of their genetics. Those analyses suggest that the common ancestor of Neanderthals and Denisovans split from the predecessors of Homo sapiens some 600 thousand years ago. That ancestor then split into two groups, with Neanderthals fanning out through Europe and the Middle East and Denisovans moving into Asia, end quote. So Neanderthals and Denisovans split off from the predecessors of Homo sapiens, and yet, according to the construction of billions of possible phylogenetic trees by a computer based on fossils characterizing 600 features from a range of hominin groups, it does appear that Dragon Man and his kin are more closely linked to Homo sapiens than to Neanderthals, sharing a common ancestor after Neanderthals split off. In other words, this new fossil could represent a third human lineage that is more recent and more closely related to us, which is being called Homo longi. But from National Geographic, quote, many of the skull's defining characteristics seem to be matters of scale rather than distinct features, says Laura Buck of Liverpool John Moores University. Even within a species, she says, some variation is expected. Differences in sex, age of the individual, regional adaptations, age of the fossil, and more can all drive slight individual changes. 
There's already a bit of an inflation of species names in anthropology, adds Ben Viola, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Toronto, who was not a part of the study team. He thinks it's preferable to group the skull with Homo daliensis or leave the species unnamed, rather than coining a new species moniker, end quote. Whether the dragon man skull does represent another species or another lineage, it is definitely one more big clue in our evolution, especially in East Asia, a location whose early human fossils have proved challenging to categorize. Zijun Ni, a co-author of the studies and a paleoanthropologist at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and Hebei GEO University, had a great response to all of the debate. Quote, The results will spark a lot of debate, and I'm quite sure that a lot of people will disagree with us. But that's science, and it's because we disagree that science progresses. End quote. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000 if you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. As some parts of the world start re-emerging to some semblance of normal work and social lives, a lot of people have found the transition back a bit rocky. We're not coming out with the same frenzied enthusiasm of our cicada brethren, but rather dipping our toes in cautiously, and more often than not, finding social situations are leaving us feeling awkward, anxious, and longing to be back on our sofas with Netflix. If any of that sounds familiar, you're not alone. According to the conversation, nearly half of Americans reported feeling uneasy about returning to in-person interactions in a survey conducted by the American Psychological Association and the Harris Poll earlier this spring. And that's regardless of vaccination status, just purely based on social factors. And hey, if you're in that other half of folks who haven't had any issues readjusting, keep listening just in case, because maybe someone in your life is struggling and you can be there for them. So why are we feeling this way? I mean, I think it makes logical sense, right? We're out of practice. Even if we miss spending time with people, we got used to not doing so physically. But what is the science behind this? Neuroscientist Kareem Clark writes in the conversation that yes, we humans are evolutionarily hardwired to socialize, and in fact, maintaining social networks is critical for survival for all animals. But, quoting Clark, social homeostasis, the right balance of social connections, must be met. Small social networks can't deliver those benefits, while large ones increase competition for resources and mates. Because of this, human brains develop specialized circuitry to gauge our relationships and make the correct adjustments, much like a social thermostat. Social homeostasis involves many brain regions, and at the center is the mesocorticolimbic circuit, or reward system. The same circuit motivates you to eat chocolate when you crave something sweet, or swipe on Tinder when you crave 
well, you get it. And like those motivations, a recent study found that reducing social interaction causes social cravings, producing brain activity patterns similar to food deprivation, end quote. And if you've read anything about the negative consequences of a person put into solitary confinement, you may see where this is going. A major effect of social isolation is increased anxiety and an increase in the stress hormone cortisol. Even people who simply have smaller social circles have higher cortisol levels, according to Clark. Quoting him, Evolutionarily, this effect makes sense. Animals that lose group protection must become hypervigilant to fend for themselves. And it doesn't just occur in the wild. One study found that self-described lonely people are more vigilant of social threats like rejection or exclusion. End quote. So our shrunken social circles and months of lockdown may have heightened our stress and anxiety. I mean, not to mention, you know, all of the other things about the past year that heightened those as well. But we also literally may have forgotten some of the crucial skills for socialization, things like selflessness and cooperation. I know I've left most in-person social interactions I've had recently feeling like I either talked way too much about myself or like I didn't get a word in because the other person did the same thing. Clark says we can forget our social behaviors just like we forget stuff we learned in high school because our hippocampus removes information we don't use. And this is backed up by studies of Antarctic expeditioners who had shrunken hippocampi after 14 months of social isolation. Fortunately, this does all appear to be reversible. There haven't been as many studies done on re-socialization, but one with marmosets in which they experienced those higher cortisol levels when isolated showed that they quickly recovered when they got to be with their friends again, and they even seemed to grow closer to one another. Studies done with mice and rats that Clark mentioned are particularly validating to me. They showed that the rodents didn't recognize their close friend immediately after short-term isolation, but after hanging out for a little bit, they quickly remembered. And even better news, most of us weren't in as extreme isolation as some of these lab animals or humans facing extreme forms of social isolation, like on Antarctic expeditions or cruelly in solitary confinement. And therefore, not only will we have lost less, but we should recover even more quickly. So feel reassured that you are not alone and the science backs up your awkwardness, but also that you'll get over it soon. Or at least you'll soon have to stop blaming reopening on how awkward you are and go back to just admitting that you are an awkward person full stop. We are in the final days of Pride Month, so I wanted to share a groundbreaking study published last week by the Williams Institute, a UCLA School of Law Research Center focused on LGBTQ plus law and public policy. The study drew on two population-based surveys to examine the demographics and characteristics of U.S. adults who are non-binary. The study marks the first ever population-based estimate of the number of non-binary people in the country, according to the outlet Them. The term non-binary is used by some people whose gender goes beyond the binary of male or female, and it can be used as an umbrella term for a whole host of other genders like agender, genderqueer, genderfluid, and more, or as a gender label itself. Some non-binary people use they-them pronouns and some don't. Some consider themselves transgender and some don't. Transgender is also a complex word that is these days most often used as an umbrella term for anyone whose gender does not align with the one they were assigned at birth, which would seem to include non-binary individuals, but not everyone feels that way. And according to this latest study, 
only 42% of non-binary respondents describe themselves as transgender. Non-binary people can have different needs and challenges than binary men and women who are trans, so having data like this survey is extremely useful in parsing out the scale of each population. But the biggest finding making all the headlines is that the Williams Institute says at least 1.2 million U.S. adults are non-binary. A pretty big number, and mostly just a helpful stat to keep in mind when policy discussions come up. And while they definitely skew young, with 76% being under the age of 30, a good chunk are older too. The study found more than 1 in 10 LGBTQ adults between the ages of 18 and 60 are non-binary. An overwhelming majority, 89%, live in urban areas, but not just on the coasts in blue states. Respondents were completely spread out in the South, Midwest, Northeast, Northwest, basically everywhere in the U.S., And I'll also note that non-binary genders have existed across time and cultures, just with different language used to describe them. The word itself, which isn't even as new as most people tend to think, might resonate now more with young, urban folks, but what it means is nothing new. And while the Williams Institute has an excellent track record for these kinds of studies, counting LGBTQ+, and especially trans and non-binary populations, is exceptionally difficult. The language people use to describe themselves can be so varied and individual, and the fears over safety are so huge that getting complete and accurate responses is really tough. And seeing as one in six Gen Zers identify as somewhere along the LGBTQ plus spectrum, I think we can assume that were kids under 18 to have been included in this study, the numbers would be even greater. So I would take that 1.2 million as being on the low side. But this study is a super helpful start. Well, that's all I got for you today, but as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.